Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sex. We're one day short of one year into Joe Biden's presidency. There's a new Politico morning consult poll out putting uh, Biden's approval rating at 40 percent, disapproval at 56 percent, which means, of course, there's going to be a lot of talk about pivots and resets. Uh, Sarah Longwell, our, our colleague, has a great piece in the Bulwark today uh, warning the Democrats that if they do not change course, they will get crushed, but then offering them some advice, which basically is stop screwing things up. Uh, uh, the president is going to be giving a rare press conference later this afternoon. And if we know anything about these things, it's probably not going to turn things around, at least not right away. Uh, and in other news, uh, the January 6th committee is issuing more subpoenas, including subpoenas for Don Jr. and his girlfriend slash fiance, Kimberly Guilfoyle. And you know what that means, right? The best is yet to come. I could not resist that. The other breaking news story today involving Trump world is the New York Attorney General is laying out the case against the Trump organization um, with lots of interesting details about uh, inflated valuations uh, and the fact that apparently Eric Trump uh, pled the Fifth Amendment to about 500 questions, which doesn't sound guilty at all. It doesn't sound like they have anything at all to hide. But that is not the big news today. And joining me on the podcast for his ninth appearance, did you realize this? Will Salatin, national correspondent of Slate Magazine, do you realize this is your ninth appearance on this podcast? Where is my jacket? I, I'm I, waiting for the jacket, Charlie. I, th I think you get a watch first before you get the jacket. Uh, so, Will, uh, you, you, you are the national correspondent for Slate, but as they say on the social media, you have some personal news. <laughs> Yes, I am coming to the Bulwark. I am coming to join the Bulwark. Uh, Charlie Sykes, Sarah Longwell, Jonathan Last, and the entire crew of uh, folks who are trying to save democracy. So tell me about that. You have been with Slate for several years now. Um, you're a very, very well-known national political reporter, and you are joining the staff of the Bulwark this month. So why? Other than the fact that we really, really, really wanted you, <laughs> and we, and we, and we have been pitching you and seducing you and cajoling you for months. Besides that, okay. So I wrote an article in Slate almost exactly a year ago about how that we need a coalition that crosses party lines, that crosses ideological lines, um, to stand for democracy, to stand for truth, to stand for some very basic things that are under threat in the United States today. We have an authoritarian menace um, inside the Republican Party. We have a, um, a, a set of, of people leading that party who are either complicit in that or are capitulating to it um, and who are lying, lying about elections, lying about the virus, lying about many things and refusing to cooperate with the January 6th committee. We need to take these people out of power and keep them out of power. We need a sane governing coalition of people who believe in facts, people who believe in the rule of law. This coalition has to cross party lines, it has to cross ideological lines. So I am coming from a publication that is generally identified with uh, liberalism, the left, the left of center, and I'm joining the bulwark to make good on this promise that we need to do, that we need to form this coalition. And the bulwark itself came to me to make good on that promise. So we are basically joining hands to defend democracy. 
Well, welcome aboard. We are uh, we are absolutely thrilled uh, to have you joining us. And of course, uh, this is actually part of a larger plan that we have uh, to grow the bulwark. There will be other changes. There will be other announcements. But I wanted to focus on all of this. You know, it's funny that we would be having this conversation today because I was making notes for a piece that I, I don't know that I'm going to actually write it, but I was going to steal the line from uh, the second coming, William Butler Yeats, the the center cannot hold because it feels right now as if this this the centrist coalition has is really um, is going through some rocky times here. Uh, you joining the bulwark is an indication that it is still alive. I guess that's one of. I want to get to that question of of whether the center can hold because I think that's central to um, what's going on right now in politics and the story of twenty twenty two and twenty twenty four. Let's talk about. President Biden and the Democrats, who have had a horrific run, feel free to disagree with anything I'm saying here. They have had, they have been on this losing streak. They have spent a lot of energy fighting with one another. Uh, he is underwater by 16 points. Uh, give me your sense of where the Biden presidency has run off the rails and what it needs to do right now. I do you do you want to? I'm one. Also, want to start thinking about what grade you would give him one year in. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm trying to think about what we thought a year ago, what our prospects were, the relief of getting rid of Donald Trump. I was one of those. I'll be honest with you, Will, that I thought it was just it was almost enough to get rid of Trump, and whatever happened would be okay. I I think that that was naive because if anything, I think these threats are even greater because Joe Biden had one job which was not to fuck it up. And I'm not sure that he hasn't done it. So what do you think? Well, there, there are two parts to the answer, right? There's, there are things that he needs to do that he hasn't done, but there are also things that he has done that he doesn't talk about. Look, we elected Joe Biden because he was the antithesis of Donald Trump. He was a decent person. He believed in the rule of law, et cetera. However, he's also the antithesis of Trump in that Trump constantly took credit for things, things he had done, things he hadn't done. He, he was willing to lie about it, but he was constantly out there saying, here's what I have done for you. Joe Biden has not done that. And I hate to say that's part of the job because literally the job is helping people. Right. But part of the job is to get elected and get reelected and help your party stay in power so that the other party, which has become insane, does not hold power, does not gain power as it seems likely to do. So Joe Biden needs to be much more aggressive. And Sarah talked about this in her yeah. article in The Bulwark about saying what he has done. We did COVID relief. You people, you know, you, you're, you, you're, and yes, inflation is a serious problem. Yes, we need to work on that. But we have done a great job of driving down unemployment, for example. There, the employment mm -hmm. market is terrific. It's one reason why you know, inflation is the obverse side of that equation. So that's just a simple example of something that Joe Biden should be talking about and isn't. The infrastructure bill got it passed, got Republican support for it. A lot of money's going out. A lot of that's going to be helping rural America, people who voted for Donald Trump. Do you hear the White House talking about this much? No, we hear them talking about what they haven't done. So that's part of the equation. That is part of the equation. And, you know, and this is what I've been wrestling with, because you look at those numbers and objectively speaking, you could say this is really a success. The economy has been a success. The, the unemployment rate has been a success. Getting those big pieces of legislation through you would normally think that you'd be patting yourself on the back, but um, in, in in part, I think it's because they raise the expectations so much that that even folks in his own party are dissatisfied about all of this. And then, of course, you just have 
the mood. And and, and I I struggle about what standard to apply to a president. Uh, do you look at the policy wins or is it more relevant to say, look, part of his job was to create a mood of optimism, which we don't have. I think people are, there is that, uh, I don't want to use the word malaise, so let's go with something different than, than malaise, but um, there is the sense of deep frustration about what's going on with the country, including currently, you know, the, the, the pandemic, uh, which he has not successfully done. It, it, it does feel like a, like, like a failure. So in terms of right track, wrong track, right now, Americans are just not feeling it. And yeah. to what to what extent is that his his fault, his responsibility? Some of it is. I just want to point out something, though, and that's that sort of underlies a lot of the problem here. I think it is in the nature of progressivism, of progressives to be dissatisfied. Right. Mm -hmm. We need to be doing more. What have we not done? Look how you know, and it, it's almost um, a cliche in progressive circles uh, to say, look, we have, you know, I. To, to almost to qualify any statement of progress by saying, but we have so much farther to go, right? right. So progressives are constantly emphasizing, it's in their nature to emphasize the glass being half empty. And that is that is a fundamental problem, right? Biden has a base that's on the, on the left, and it's difficult to say that we're doing great when so many of them feel that there's so much yet to be done. So it's a balancing act, how to speak to those folks, and yet also say to the rest of the country, Look, look what we've accomplished. Um, you know, Bill Clinton was better at this, right? Bill Clinton was good at saying, here's, you know, breaking the agenda down into pieces and saying, we, look, look at this great thing we just passed. Like Joe Manchin right now would go for a lot of the, you know, something big enough that Bill Clinton would have said it was an enormous success. But we are living in this world where anything short of the entire Build Back Better bill uh, is presented as a failure. Well, you know, it was funny. I was listening to uh, one of the cable channels yesterday um, as I was walking the dog, and um, it was it was wall to wall beating up on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema as if they were the only things standing between uh, the, the progressives and their agenda. And and it really did strike me that you have fifty Republicans who are sitting there on the sidelines eating popcorn, going, "This is great," because. You have this entire performative show in the Senate where uh, what we get to call out Joe Manchin, the Democrat who um, improbably represents West Virginia in the United States Senate. And, and in a sense, they really have let the Republicans off the hook almost completely because this demonization of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, I mean, I understand that it, that it, that it plays to the id. But what do they what do they hope to accomplish by having these show votes to what to highlight that these are the bad guys? What is the upside other than satisfying the activist base, the donor base, because it's not getting them anywhere? Right? I mean, it's not accomplishing anything. No, and, and uh, it's obviously counterproductive. You don't really need better evidence of it being counterproductive than the fact that Joe Manchin's off what what he's offering keeps shrinking, and people accuse him of moving the goalposts. Well, it really might help if you stopped attacking the guy. I mean, I think the left has completely lost perspective on the situation. You, you slash we people onto the left of center were given a tremendous gift 
in the Georgia Senate races. You got two Senate races, which put the Democrats in charge of the Senate and allowed you to pass things. That is a wonderful position to be in. You, what you should be doing is saying, what can we pass with the 50 votes we have? Not attacking two of the 50 that you have, right? So uh, the, the Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are willing to pass quite a lot. And it's a little bit crazy to be personally attacking them. It's also just clinically insane to be talking about primarying a Democratic yeah. senator in West Virginia. So, Tim Miller pointed this out. He, uh, he guest wrote my newsletter back in December when I was on a break. And he said, look, here's a reminder. Joe Manchin is the only thing standing between America and Senator Cletus von Ivermectin in 2024. <laughs> because who do you think is going to replace Joe Manchin in the Senate? How do you think that works out? So I'm thinking Bernie Sanders is up there. You know, yes, we're going to primary you. And, and what is that going to get you? It's going to get you a Republican senator, right? who is going to be if, uh, from that wing of the party, you're not going to be getting, you know, another Democrat, a more progressive Democrat out of West Virginia. I mean, this is delusional. So here's the question I want to ask you, Will. Looking back, and of course, it's always, you know, it's, it's, it's always a little bit unfair to, uh, to engage in revisionism, but I think you can make a case that there was a real potential, and maybe still is, for Joe Biden to govern from the center, that there was a bipartisan centrist coalition out there. And you start with, you had seven Republican senators who voted to convict Donald Trump in the impeachment last year. Seven. Okay, so you start with seven Republicans who are basically out there in play in the wilderness, right? You had uh, 19 senator, Republican senators who voted for the infrastructure bill. So there are some senators you can work with on some things. In the House of Representatives, there were 10 Republicans that voted to impeach Donald Trump and therefore, I think, were in play, willing to perhaps you know do things that would cross the line. There were more than 30 uh, House Republicans that voted for the January 6th commission. So even though right now, we're seeing, you know, absolute lockstep opposition. There was some potential there, wasn't there? I mean, I understand the argument saying, well, no, there's no, no, no chance to work on a bipartisan basis because, look, they're all in opposition. Well, how did we get here? Do you have a sense how we got here? Because you go back to those numbers and there seemed to be an opening for somebody like Joe Biden to sit with those seven that voted for impeachment, the 19 that voted for infrastructure and said, OK, Obviously, we can work together. Why has that not happened outside of that one big piece of legislation? Well, to some extent, we're we're caught in a in a, a sort of a downward spiral, and the 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 principle that it's at the center of this spiral is reconciliation. Right? What we have is lockstep Republican opposition on a lot of things, and therefore Democrats are focused on what they can pass through the reconciliation process. So they don't have to worry about a filibuster. And to do that, they've got to cram everything. They only get this one shot at it, right? Um, this isn't, you're having arguments with the parliamentarian about how many times you can do it. And that is inducing this sort of bizarro thing where we so. have to put the entire package together. Some of what's in the package is broadly popular. Some of it is only popular on the left. And all of it is a lot of spending, right? right. So that has warped. The, if, you were to, if you were to back up and say, look, 
we're just going to do the child tax credit, right? Or we're just going to do universal pre-K or something. These would be enormous wins for progressives, for the country, and people would be very happy with it. And you would just be getting a sense of forward momentum. So that's where I think they need to change their approach. So where are we at? I know you've been writing a lot about uh, the pandemic and the coronavirus and, uh, the uh, the administration, of course, rolled out their website for the free tests, which apparently is uh, glitch free, uh, unlike the rollout of the Obamacare website, which we all remember back from was it uh, 2014 or, or, or 2013. And, and the president is also going to be announcing um, hundreds of millions of free masks. Uh, give me your sense of how the administration has handled the pandemic and where the country is right now, because it has a weird feel. We're still like close to 2,000 Americans a day are dying, and yet the country is clearly like done with it. So where, where are we at with the, the Omicron variant? Well, you know, Omicron has, has come through. It's, gonna, it's already peaked in a lot of places. It's coming down. So this is going to have passed. But there will be other waves, and we're going to have, you know, people, we're going to have to get used to the idea that there will be new variants and new waves coming in, and we'll deal with them as best we can. The question is how we deal with them, right? And this, Charlie, should be really, really simple. There are some very basic things that we know work against this virus, and we have, you know, vaccines, masks, testing. These are very basic things. And one of our major political parties is against these things. Now, Republicans will say they're not anti-vax. First of all, they have been anti-mask for quite some time, starting with Donald Trump sort of making fun of masks, refusing to wear masks. We have Ron DeSantis and others. We have a lot of Republican politicians preventing local governments from acquiring masks, trying to prevent private sector from doing these things. Then they moved on to vax. Once the vaccines were available, same thing with the vaccines. So there are these preventive measures that the Republican Party is getting in the way of. The Democratic Party and this, the coalition of the sane, as I guess I would call it, needs to just focus on these three things. We're going to promote vaccination. We're going to promote masks. We're going to do all of that so that we can get back to normal. That's what people want. Take schools, for example, right? We are going to keep the schools open. We are going to keep businesses open. We are not going to lock down. And the way we're going to accomplish that without killing people is that we're going to get vaccinated and we're going to wear masks to the extent necessary when there is a surge. And the testing is part of that, obviously. So they're, they're rolling out the tests. So that, that is a very simple agenda that the coalition of the sane ought to be able to win on and Joe Biden ought to be able to win on. It is worth mentioning over and over and over again that we do have this uh, this tribal opposition to vaccination. You do have the demagoguery of people like Ron DeSantis down in down in Florida, uh, the belated endorsement by by Donald Trump, uh, but that's created massive headwinds to the effort to to vaccinate. But in terms of testing, that looks like a big fail on the part of the Biden administration, wasn't it? To not move forward more aggressively, not, uh, I don't know whether they actually slowed down or or just dropped the ball on the creation of the test, but almost three years in, into this pandemic, it's, it's ridiculous that it's hard to get tests. I mean, it's yeah. ridiculous that we have to wait this long. Yeah, the testing should have been, I mean, it, once Omicron was coming our way, it should have been crystal clear that there was going to be a massive surge, as there was in South Africa, as there was in Denmark and the UK. And when that happens, you were just going to get swamped. And people, you know, the, the like the crisis in hospitals now is not so much the number of, I mean, it's that the healthcare workers themselves are infected. So you have this problem with the supply of, of, 
of personnel to handle the incoming patients. So you've got to be able to get testing out to people so they can track themselves, so they can know when to stay out of circulation. Um, and, and we just, we weren't ready with that. I mean, the problem under, it's different from the problem under Trump, right? The problem under Trump was the guy was actually actively getting in the way of a solution in the Biden administration. We have a better problem, but it's still a problem. It is a little bit slow to move, right? Slow to make decisions about the booster, slow to activate the, but once they move, once they decided to get tests out to people, they've moved pretty fast. This last stage has moved pretty fast. So they need to keep going with that. And of course, we're, we're still up against this wave of disinformation. I, I noticed that uh, you uh, tweeted last night about this Fox News segment um, against booster requirements imposed by private colleges. And at one point, uh, somebody said, we, we now know that the vaccines do not prevent infection and transmission, so any community spread benefit is negligible. As you pointed out, that's an absolute lie. And Fox News continues to be a menace. And this is something that I, I don't know that there's an answer for the Biden administration, uh, you know, to, except to continue pushing out the correct information. But, I, you know, Fox News appears to be utterly without shame. I, I see that my uh, senior senator from Wisconsin, uh, Ron Johnson, is going to be holding uh, some sort of a non-official hearing where he's going to have all sorts of vaccine skeptics out there. So this is just out there in the world. Uh, how do you how do you how do you fight this sort of, you know, this this cascading disinformation bullshit campaign? Yeah, this is totally exasperating to me because what I see is there's a coordinated Republican campaign. They're out on Fox News, they're out on Newsmax and wherever. And what they're saying is more people have died of COVID under Joe Biden than under Donald Trump. Now, what people don't understand or it's hard to convey is who is it who is dying? Who is it who is spreading it, right? It is a, it, the people who are less likely to be vaccinated are Republicans. Why are they less likely? Because they're hearing this garbage on Fox News and other places. And they're hearing not just anti-mandate arguments from Republicans, but Republican politicians justifying their opposition to mandates by telling lies or misleading people about the efficacy of the vaccines. So, so you have fact, Fox News saying, the, the vaccine shouldn't be mandated, including by private entities. That's not exactly a, the, the conservative libertarian position, right? But they're saying that shouldn't be mandated, shouldn't be required anywhere. And to justify that, they're claiming the vaccines don't. Now, the truth is, right, the vaccine vaccines don't absolutely prevent you from right. getting COVID, right? So you, you, there is a risk. What they do is drastically, drastically reduce the likelihood that you will get COVID. And if you get it, it will be at a lower level so that A, you won't die, B, you won't go to the hospital, C, you're much less likely to spread it because the amount of virus you have is low. So all of these things would, you know, what we have is Republicans interfering with the process that would get people to get vaccinated, mask up, reduce the spread, and then attributing that to Joe Biden. So what he can do is essentially get out there and promote vaccination as he's been doing, right? Promote um, masking when necessary and, and make tests available. And I think he just needs to get out there and confront the other party about the misinformation campaign. So let me switch gears for a moment. Um, the, the January 6th committee is obviously moving ahead very, very aggressively. We're going to be seeing um, the one hopes uh, televised uh, public hearings soon. And my, my guess is that they're going to break some uh, very, very interesting ground. The conventional wisdom seems to be shifting, though, that that uh, it, it, it doesn't matter because the voters really don't care. And, and in some ways, it's true that the average voter cares more about the economy. They care more about inflation than they care about January 6th. I personally think at some point you have to say that's irrelevant. 
that you have to do this, not necessarily because it's politically popular, but because it is absolutely essential for the rule of, of, of law. And I hope they continue to be as aggressive as possible about all this, including continuing to pursue these subpoenas. And, you know, uh, there's been so much attention focused on the people who are refusing to cooperate. Well, the reality is, is that there's nothing you can do that will make Kevin McCarthy actually testify. But I'm not sure that's necessary. Based on what I'm seeing, they have a tremendous amount of evidence uh, that, you know, by, by the end of the day, I think we're going to know who did what and who knew what when. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean... I, I I think I agree to some extent that this is an issue that's not affecting people in the pocketbook. So they're not, you know, voters are not going to focus on this as much as I would like. You still, I agree with you, we have to stand up for it. But there are some very simple ways that you can try to bring it home to people. So for example, if you have Tom Cotton and a bunch of Republicans out front saying that the Democrats are out trying to defund police. They're soft on crime. Yes. It is quite useful to point out that there was an attack on the government of the United States, that, there, that it was terrorism, it was violence against police, and that the so-called party of law and order stood by and is now refusing to cooperate with the investigation of that attack. So this is a law and order issue. And for the life of me, I do not understand why Democrats, why Joe Biden cannot make that connection in a more effective way. Can I underline this in big red letters here? Because this is a great point. What you had was this, not only the attack on the government, violent attack, but but the the video that we have, the images we have, the testimony that we have of the, uh, the assault on police officers and the party that likes to wrap itself in the, you know, we back the blue is basically turning a blind eye to all of that. And I, you, you are absolutely right. If the Democrats want to pivot, you know, they can go on the offensive on this issue, which also happens to be right now, as at, at, at the moment, kind of a liability, I think, for Democrats. Democrats need to understand they have a problem when it comes to their perception of their position on crime and law and order and the police. This is just, it, it seems like it, it is wrapped up for them to go hard at say, you people, um, you know, who who actually is standing up for law and order? Who is, uh, you know, is 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 hiding behind, uh, you know, you know, hi- hiding hiding behind uh, technicalities in order not to not to tell the truth? I I don't know. So why do you think they haven't done it yet? Well, I think they're concerned about police reform and police violence, and there is, you know, uh, people of color are very upset with uh, police violence that has disproportionately affected them. However, but you can do both, right? Yeah. People of color also live in neighborhoods where crime is a problem, and where they and if you look at polling on this, they want police. They want police Eric Adams, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Eric Adams, and I think honestly, Charlie, I think a lot of this is there are a lot of white people in the Democratic Party who don't know how to talk about this and who have a lot of anxiety around race. But black people don't have, I mean, Eric Adams doesn't have this problem. I'm like, uh, he's, yes, police should, we black people are the community. We want the police to protect us, right? And and he's a former cop. He's He, he understands this. You know, Sarah Longwell in her article today talked, there's a word she used there, chaos, right? People yeah. don't like chaos. This is a very basic moral intuition that people have. The Democratic no, they, Party you, needs you. to stand up and say, 
no chaos, right? We, we're not going to accept riots. We're not going to accept violence. We're going to stand up against the violence of January 6th. We're going to stand up against all kinds of chaos in the streets. We're going to have police out there, and they are going to defend everyone, not just white people, but they are going to defend us. She also makes the point that I think the Democrats underestimated the impact of some of the uh, street violence and the rioting that took place. You know, she wrote a piece, you know, saying that Joe Biden need to really needed to come out very, very strongly and condemn it. Of course, he, you know, he obviously did do that, but not until the Republicans were able to solidify their narrative. And I know that here in Wisconsin, I think Wisconsin uh, turned out to be much, much closer in 2020 uh, than uh, than the polls indicated, in, in large part because of reaction to things that were happening in Kenosha. And I, I, I do notice that, you know, I, that's, look, there's obviously a, a, an echo chamber and, and bubble uh, on the right. We know that. I've written about that. You've written about that. But I think there's one on the left as well. And I don't think that they fully understood the way those issues were playing out, that, that how chaos plays into. And okay, this would be true of the border as well. Any sort of uh, chaos plays into uh, the Republican messaging. And, and they will weaponize that like they did in 2020. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, th- there's a word that's coming back to me that people on the left don't like. It's triangulation. So what, yeah. what Bill Clinton used to do was he would clarify where, the, where he stood, where the Clinton Democratic Party stood, by pointing to something that was going on on the far left that was wrong, right? And in this case, it is, you know, uh, com- chaos in the streets, right? It is, it is, it's violence and it's runaway crime. Uh, and there's nothing wrong. There's nothing, there's no moral compromise in saying we stand against that. This is just an intuition that the Democratic Party, that the left is not used to speaking to, right? If this is something that the Republicans think they own and they can keep, even after they supported an insurrection, they'll come back and say, we're the party of law and order. They branded themselves this way. The Democratic Party has to go cross over and, and take that away. We're the party that believes you can't attack the capital of the United States, right? You And you can't, uh, uh, we, we're not going to accept ramp, rampant crime. We're going to be pro-police. We're the party that's willing to fund police. That is a message that some Democrats have talked about and Democrats should talk about more. We are willing to spend money to protect you against violence of all kinds. You know, some of this, it, it sounds so easy to do. And yet, as you point out, there there is that sort of, I don't know, maybe just the it, it, a, a reluctance. It, it doesn't it doesn't come naturally. You know, we, we've had a lot of discussions about why the Biden administration doesn't tout the economic successes as, as as much. And this goes back to this as well, that that if you're the party that believes that that America is deeply unequal, um, that believes that uh, that we need, you know, vast transformational change, it's hard to uh, be rah-rah you know, about the stock market, right? I mean, it, it, it's hard to say, hey, you know what? Things are going absolutely great because your entire agenda is basically saying, no, there's something fundamentally wrong with the country. Or is that overstating it? No, I think that's fair. And I think that progressive people need to think about what progress means. Progress is literally a process, right? You don't get it all at once. What you do is you're moving forward. You are making progress. We pass universal pre-K. Then we or we pass the child tax credit. We have a series of things we're going to do. If you don't actually pass any of those elements and you're insisting on the whole thing, you are literally not making any progress. And it's natural that people would be frustrated with that. So 
it, this is not a moral compromise. It is in the spirit of progress that you're going to do things one at a time. Okay, so let me switch gears a little bit because this is another one of these strange moments in in American politics. And I, I've, I've actually weaned myself off of uh, paying too much attention to Tucker Carlson. But there's something else going on that's so weird over there at Fox News uh, where we've had this absolute inversion of our politics. Uh, Tucker Carlson's monologues now about Ukraine appear to be ripped right from RT, you know, Russia Today, uh, Vladimir Putin's talking points. Here, here's a short soundbite of Tucker Carlson last night comparing Ukraine to Mexico or something. Let me just play this. Why are we moving towards some kind of conflict? Well, there's one reason. One Over reason. a number of different administrations, the United States government has pushed Ukraine to join NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Imagine if Mexico fell under the direct military control of China, we would see that as a threat, of course. Uh, There'd be no reason for that. Well, that's how Russia views NATO control of Ukraine. And why wouldn't they? We don't get anything out of pushing Ukraine into NATO. So why are we doing this? Well, <laughs> where, do you, where do you start with all of that? It's, it's crazy. I don't know what's going on right. with Tucker. You know, it, yeah. it, 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 he is straight out of, but there, there is a strain obviously that has emerged in the Republican party of isolationism, right? And it's, it's Matt Gates, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's Tucker Carlson. It's like, there, it, it, it's well, like, Trump. Rep- yeah. and Trump, yeah. sorry, Trump, yeah. Yeah, Trump being the original. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it, you know, trying to pull troops out of everywhere. And it's like, you know, and people are tired of wars and I understand all that, but what, you know, what Tucker is doing and what a lot of Republicans, they're going further, right? They're sort of, dissociating themselves from the United States of America. I mean, Tucker Carlson literally said about a month ago that, um, you know, there was a, he was having an exchange with a guest. He literally insinuated that the United States was opposing Vladimir Putin because, because Putin's Russia was Christian. So he's so, he's so interested. There's a strand of Republicanism that is so hostile to the the United States under a democratic government and a little democratic capital D government that it is willing to sort of side with an authoritarian arch enemy <laughs> against I don't know us. That you can, I don't I honestly think we can overstate this, that what you just heard there was flat out Vladimir Putin propaganda, that why are we edging toward a, uh, a conflict? Well, it's all our fault. I mean, you know, for people who have been conservative, you know, this is the kind of rhetoric that you would have expected from the far left. So it's all our fault because our government is pushing Ukraine into NATO, which would mean that it would be under what, you know, direct military control. So it would be like China having direct military control over Mexico, which is, of course, ludicrous. First of all, we are not China. Second of all, NATO is not direct military control. It's not a dictatorship. It's an alliance. But the agency of Vladimir Putin and his desire for hegemony, uh, his imperial Russian ambitions, um, you know, the dishonesty, the the stealthy uh, subversion of Ukraine. It doesn't exist. It's all blame America first. And I have to say, even with all of the flip flopping and the changes and the shape shifting on the right, this is amazing to listen to. Yeah, it, it's part of uh, it's part of a general evacuation by the Republican Party and Fox News and the conservative movement of principle. Right, there were a whole bunch of in, of, of ideas that conservatism used to speak to. One of which was national security, democracy, freedom. Right, and and they've just 
abandoned that, right? So here we have a, a, dic- a dictator who's like invading other countries. Literally, he went in seven years ago and amputated part yeah. of Ukraine, right? There's no, and, and yet Tucker Carlson and people like him are going to, are, are so, so there's this enormous vacuum that, that Joe Biden and the Democratic Party could go into and say, you know what, we actually, actually believe that Vladimir Putin is a bad guy and that he's the aggressor and that we need to protect freedom against him. And, and it's just not a move that, that Democrats have made, but it's available to them. So I want to flag this without getting too deep into it. Um, the uh, New York Attorney General uh, issued a, a statement today pushing for more testimony from Donald Trump and the whole Trump family. And, and then she lays out details of her case about the looks like fraud um, by the uh, Trump organization, you know, misstating objective facts like the size of Mr. Trump's Trump Tower penthouse, amazingly, uh, miscategorized assets, um, inflated valuations, uh, you know, things that have been, you know, we've suspected or known about or have been reported, but but now are part of the record. Uh, she also uh, revealed that uh, Eric Trump has... Uh, <laughs> It was pleading the Fifth Amendment to 500 questions. I, I, I guess my hesitancy to go too deep in. I mean, this 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 seems to be quite compelling to me. I want to make that clear. But um, there is the, all, all the supercuts out there of people saying, well, the walls are closing in on Donald Trump. They're going to get Donald Trump. They're going to get. Um, I think at this point, sort of watch it sort of on the side. But I don't you know, I, I, I don't know what to say about it, you know, except that. Don't, don't don't get your hopes up too high. Don't think this is going to stop Donald Trump from running. Don't think this is going to stop Donald Trump from possibly winning. Yeah, I don't have a lot of faith in this, in, in the, the corruption investigations of Trump and his family. I mean, they, they might turn up something that, that, that can, I mean, it's, it's hard to go after a former president. It also, Charlie, this makes it look to the public like the principal problem with Trump is corruption. And that is just not true. I mean, lots of people are corrupt. He's particularly corrupt, but it's still all of the same species of corruption. This guy instigated an attack on the government of the United States. It's really that simple. And that is why he must never be, as Liz Cheney said, must not be allowed anywhere near power again. And it's really important to keep that front and center. I mean, I've God bless the invest. I mean, Trump is corrupt. The family is corrupt. And I hope the, the AG is able to nail him. But, you know, I'm not counting on. You know, it, it is it is a fascinating question. I know that we're accused of being um, never Trump, which we are. But now it's never again Trump. And even though never Trump turned out to be a relatively small uh, group within the Republican Party, you would think that never again Trump would have much wider appeal among Republicans who have to be watching what Trump did after the election, watching his behavior on January 6th, watching, you know, his petulance uh, in refusing to go along with a peaceful transfer of of, of power. So, but it, it, so instead we get sort of the magical thinking that maybe he'll go away, maybe he'll die, maybe Ron DeSantis will take him on. Uh, where do you come down on the Ron DeSantis thing? Because, because I mean, the, the, there's real tension there. There's no question about the dueling egos, but you know, I agree with JVL here. You know, there's no way that Ron DeSantis is going to take out Donald Trump. It is just not going to happen. What do you think? Yeah, this. The, all right. So I think that it depends how you look at this question. When I step back and say how, you know, a, what, a guy with Donald Trump's record and Donald Trump's personality and high unfavorables, could he really get elected? Part of me says no. That's the same part of me that said he couldn't get elected in 2016. Well, exactly. Right. So so I so I'm sort of setting that discounting that mm-hmm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. When I set when I look at the equation separately, 
who is going to win the Republican nomination for president? And then what are the prospects for the Republican nominee in the general election? I get really scared because I, as you, as I agree with both of you, I don't see anyone taking the Republican nomination from Trump if he wants it. We already know, we already see people like Lindsey Graham and others capitulating to Donald Trump. In fact, saying that if you don't support Donald Trump, you can't be the Senate majority leader. So the, the party is already capitulating to that. Once he becomes the nominee, now it's a straight up choice between him and Joe Biden or whoever. The, and, and that is a very iffy proposition because as awful as Donald Trump is, he's got 40%. And it doesn't take too much to see him squeaking out another win. No, it, it does not. It, it, in fact, it's very conceivable. And I think people need to understand this. Do you think that, I know it, I'm speculating now, so I won't hold you to this. Do you think that, Don, that Joe Biden does run for reelection? I don't know. I am not a huge Joe Biden fan in the sense that I do. I agree with the people who think that Joe Biden is in a process of decline and you can see it. And it's really, oh, absolutely. I mean, we, here we are pleading with Joe Biden to get out and drive a message. There's a reason why he's not driving the message. I really think he's not able to do it in a way that he would have been 10 or 20 years ago. So this is a major problem. It's going to get worse. Um, if you had someone like, you know, Mayor Pete out there or somebody else who could drive a message, Kamala Harris, if she were more popular, uh. that's that you need some energy. I, I really don't want Joe Biden to run for reelection. I think he's in the process of decline. And by 2024, it's going to be really obvious. I can't disagree with you. I will say that um, I was in a little bit of denial about that during the campaign. I thought that this was exaggerated. But the point you're making is I think it's impossible to refute, which is there is a reason why um, we don't hear from him a lot. There's a reason why he has not had these kinds of press conferences. My expectations are quite low. There's a piece. Um, I don't have it in front of me here. Um, by in, in the Washington Post where they talked to a focus group about how he was, what they thought of him. And this was a focus group of, I think, of progressives, and I think it was by a Democratic uh, pollster, Celinda Lake. And it's kind of, I mean, the people just don't think, okay, here it is. It's a, this is a tweet from Ashley Parker. Old, incoherent, lazy, sleepy Joe. One year in, Biden has a huge image problem among the voters he needs to win over. And then she writes about it. Those those phrases are among the first descriptions that came to mind for 10 suburban women swing voters who gathered late last year for a virtual focus group conducted by Democratic pollster Celinda Lake on behalf of several liberal organizations. The results were reviewed by the Post on the condition of anonymity to protect the identity of the participants and the groups. Asked to elaborate, the women in the focus group said it seemed like he's trying, but that Biden shuffles and frequently seems to lose his train of thought. Biden is wishy-washy and standing up to his own party, one woman said, explaining that she thought the president seemed more like an actor in a supporting role. So this was at one point kind of a conservative you know, Republican talking point, but now it's really becoming conventional wisdom. And yeah. this, is, this is a real problem for Democrats because I have to tell you, that I, I mean, I, this is a problem, but, but Kamala Harris is, is her problem is not just that she's not more popular. She's just not very good either. Yeah. Uh, l l let me say one thing about Biden here that I think I want to draw a yeah. distinction. Okay. So okay. there's a Republican attack on Biden, which is that he's incompetent, right? Yeah. That, and I don't believe that is true at all. I believe Joe Biden as a decision maker is fine. He's very good. He's, he's logical. He's sensible. He's self-correcting when necessary. He's, he's terrific at that. Joe Biden's problem is presentation. It's an appearance problem. He has trouble speaking. People have passed this off to me as a stutter. It's not just a stutter. He has trouble sort of 
talking his way through. It's in there. It's in there in his brain. He's having trouble getting it out. And that makes him, it's really hard because you can't use the bully pulpit when you're not good at the pulpit, right? So I just want to draw a distinction. He is not in cognitive decline in terms of making decisions. It's a matter of who's doing the talking. Now, on, on Kamala Harris, I do not know what to make of this because I really like Kamala Harris. She's a really good speaker. She's really good at driving a message. Her problem, in my opinion, is she's good at driving a negative message, at criticizing. She's, she's not really good at defending and explaining. And maybe she can fix this. I think she has the talent to fix it, but she's not there yet. And while she's not there, people are developing negative views of her and she's got to undo that. Yeah. And it is very difficult to undo those things uh, sometimes. Will Salatin, um, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. And let me just reiterate how delighted I am that you are joining the Bulwark, that the Bulwark is growing and that uh, and that you want to be part of it. I mean, we have admired your work, but and I also feel it kind of validates the things that we have been doing, that somebody of your caliber and your reputation will be part of the Bulwark going forward. Thank you very much, Charlie. I'm looking forward to working with you. And I want to tell people who are to the left of center, look at the Bulwark. These are people, you know, there's a Maya Angelou line that, uh, you know, you, you should, uh, <laughs> uh, when people show you who they are, uh, believe them. And it's used today to refer to people who are bad. It's also <laughs> true of people who are good, right? There is a, There are people who have left the Republican Party because when it came time to show whether you were principled or not, whether you believed in truth, whether you believed in facts, whether you believed in democracy, they stood up and they walked out. Those people are at the bulwark. And I want to encourage anyone who is to the left of center, to take a look at this publication and the people in it. You will be very happy with what you see. Well, welcome aboard. We're going to have a lot of fun. I hope we're going to do a lot of good, and at least we're going to be in the in the right fight uh, in the right way. Uh, Will Seltzen, thanks for joining me. And thank you all for listening to the Bulwark Podcast today. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again. <laughs>